You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome to The Venue. Y'all excited to be here? Yeah. Okay, let's hope, anticipating that. Uh, how many of you are excited it's 2021? Yeah, I figured we'd get that as well. Uh, well, I speak on behalf of the staff here at South Coast. We hope that you had a safe New Year's celebration um, as you celebrated. Uh, as Cole mentioned earlier, Brandon uh, and his family took off this week and visited family in Florida. And he doesn't do this too often, but uh, decided to take the day off, so that's why he's not here. Brandon, if you're watching, buddy, thank you for the opportunity to, to fill in and to communicate the word of God this morning. Um, I came across a post a couple days ago that I feel just bears repeating and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, Something posted on Instagram by a gentleman by the name of Dustin Benge. Dustin is an author, he's a former pastor, and now he's a lecturer and professor who resides in the United Kingdom. And in his post, he said this, and I love this, and I, I feel it's just a kind of a great way to start the new year off, uh, as the saints have gathered to worship on this first Sunday in the new year. Dustin said this, seven things that I've learned from the year 2020. Number one, God is still sovereign, amen? Two, Christ is still reigning. Three, the spirit is still interceding. Four, the church is still essential, amen? Satan is still deceiving, number five. Number six, the gospel is still saving. And number seven, glory is still coming. Amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open up to the book of Job. We're gonna do a little bit of reading. As you're doing that, let me pray for our time together. Father in heaven, we come to you now asking you to be in us what we cannot be in ourselves as we hear from you. So Father, I'm gonna ask that I decrease as you increase. Father, I know there are many people in this room who have had thoughts uh, and an excitement and anticipation moving into a new year, knowing that anything literally could be better than 2020. Father, help us to remember that you still give grace and you still give mercy, even in this very moment. And Father, even if 2021 doesn't look like what we think it should or what we want it to, Help us to still know you and call you good and loving. Father, I pray that you would not allow Satan to steal our joy in the deepest, darkest moments of life and on the mountaintops as we celebrate and rejoice. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanted to begin with a couple of uh, references to some historical events that have happened over the last 20 years to kind of set the stage for not only our time together, but the book of Job. September 10th, 2001. On that night, almost 20 years ago, 246 people went to sleep in preparation for their morning flights. 343 firefighters went to sleep in preparation for their morning shifts. Eight paramedics went to sleep in preparation for their morning shift to go out and do what they normally do on a daily basis, and that's help people and save lives. 60 police officers went to sleep in preparation for their morning patrol on the next day. 
2,606 people went to sleep in preparation for work the next morning. Here's what they all have in common. All 3,200 of those people went to sleep not knowing that they wouldn't live past 10 a.m. Many of us in this room know exactly where we were at when the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center occurred in New York City on September 11th. On that day, the U.S. experienced great tragedy, pain, hurt, loss, anguish, confusion, and a new level of sadness that we probably had never thought about or experienced. I can remember looking at the TV screen, thinking, what's going on? Like, what am I watching right now? And for the next several months, maybe even that first year, we took time to recoup, to grieve, but I believe that we as a nation walked through a new level of sadness together. And in that time, the 20 years removed from that event, I did another search and I counted 42, if not more, possibly more, mass shootings that have occurred in the United States since that time. In great cities such as Jacksonville, Florida, Aurora, Colorado, Nashville, Tennessee, Las Vegas, Nevada, Newton, Colorado, excuse me, Newton, Connecticut, El Paso, Texas, Orlando, Florida, and even as recent and as close to home is the Midland, Odessa area on August 31st, 2019. These were senseless acts of violence done often with an unknown purpose or an unknown reason. December 26th, the day after Christmas, 2004, another massive disaster occurred that would soon be heard around the world. A tsunami of epic proportions erupted in the Indian Ocean and ended up being one of the deadliest natural disasters to date with 1.7 million people made homeless. Half a million people were injured and over 230,000 people lost their lives. Fast forward, March, 2020. The world as we knew it basically came to a screeching halt as we entered into a global pandemic. COVID-19 finally reared its ugly head, even though it kind of been laying under the radar for a few months. Many of us had things taken away from us last year. It's kind of nice to say that finally, last year. <laughs> Maybe we had our jobs taken away, our livelihoods were taken away, our social life, graduations, vacations, maybe even family members were taken away. But as difficult as 2020 has been, I feel some of us here today in this room would say that 2020 allowed for us to experience some good things, right? Amen? Some necessary things. Uh, that maybe we're just kind of hiding underneath and we kind of brought to the surface and realized, oh, this is good. This is necessary. Maybe it's family time. Maybe there are things that we just kind of neglected over time, things that we knew were important, but we just weren't allowing to come to the surface because of our busy schedules. Sean McDowell, who is a gifted communicator and a professor of apologetics at Biola University in California, recently posted this on his Instagram. It was, this was literally just a couple days ago. He said this, there is no doubt that people have suffered during the COVID-19 pandemic. People have lost jobs and thus suffered economically. Many others have suffered physically because of the disease. 
Yet there is another kind of suffering people have experienced during the pandemic that is revealing about the kind of world that we inhabit, the kind of world that we live in. And here's what he said. We have all suffered relationally. The quarantine has revealed our deep need for relationships. It reveals that we are essentially relational creatures that flourish in communion with others. To me, this suggests something about reality that is uniquely at home in the Christian worldview, end quote. If I could paraphrase what he says, I, I think it's short, kind of paraphrased, shortened up by saying this. The quarantine has proved to others what Christians already knew and believed about ourselves and the way life is and the way God designed life to be. The quarantine showed other people that we were made for community. And when times get tough, God uses his people to lift each other up and to help one another, encourage one another as we hope and trust in him. Now I begin this way this morning because this is where we find ourselves in the book of Job. We are back in our sermon series, The Book. Um, excited to get to be with you this morning and look at this book together. Um, the reason this has been exciting and daunting is because if any of you know anything about the book of Job, you know what the general theme is and it is that of suffering. The theme of this book dives deep into the subject of theodicy. Has anyone ever heard that word, theodicy? Was it because I mentioned it to you? Okay, yeah, I hadn't until a few days ago. Theodicy, theodicy. Theodicy is a fancy word that basically deals with the justice or the goodness of God in light of human suffering. Y'all follow me? Is that making sense? That's what that, that fancy word stands for. In other words, to put it is, and maybe you've heard it this way, if God is good and loving, then why do we still have evil and suffering? Fair question to ask, right? Well, I think the book of Job deals with that. And that's what I, I hope to show you this morning as we read through it and as we think about it. Um, if you've ever, again, read anything in the book of Job, whether it was just a short section or the entire book by itself, if you've tried to understand it, you might conclude that Job's life is a perfect picture of Murphy's Law. Has anyone ever heard of Murphy's Law? Yes, I had heard it before, I didn't really know what it meant, so I went and looked it up. Murphy's Law is an epigram that basically says anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And if you know anything about Job's life, that's what happened. But why? Why would God allow Job as we'll see in just a moment, an upright and blameless man allow him to suffer. How could God allow such things to happen to him? One of the questions you may have wondered at some point in your life, whether you're a new believer or you've been a believer for 15 or 20 years, you may have wondered or thought or asked this question, if God exists, why then is there so much suffering and tragedy and loss? Or maybe the question was worded this way, and I think you all will, will track with me and resonate. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a good question, isn't it? Has anyone else ever wondered that in life? Good. It's a fair question. It's a logical question. I'm glad I've asked it. And I'm, I'm glad you've asked it because I'd love to give you an answer at the end of our time this morning. As we dive into the book of Job together, 
I'd like us to read uh, chapter one together. And then what I wanna do is just kind of survey the book really quickly. And I wanna point out five biblical truths uh, that will be helpful as we consider sovereign suffering. Job chapter one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and who turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this continually. So in the first five verses, the author of Job, who we're unsure of, gives us a picture of who this man is and what he's about. Now, verse six takes a pretty big jump in uh, where we're at and where we're going. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I love that phrase, by the way. I wanna be a man of God where God is sitting in the courts of heaven with his angelic being saying, have you considered my servant, Tony? Have you considered my servant, Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So you all see what Satan's doing here, right? Okay. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in your hand, <clears throat> excuse me, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their, in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another man and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, it gets worse. There came another man and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they were dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Literally, everything Job had, everything we saw in verses one through five, gone. Dead or taken, no longer his. Verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's a pretty epic first chapter. Sets the story, sets the stage. Let me see if I can give you a quick survey of what transpires after these events. Let's talk briefly about this book. Uh, what we've read and where we're about to go. The book of Job is actually the first of five poetical books uh, in the Old Testament. So as we work through this week and the next four weeks, we will be working through the poetical books of the Old Testament. And it will be helpful for us to know this given the context that they're in. Now, in fact, three out of those five poetical books are considered to be wisdom literature. How many of you heard that before? We have wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Great. Three books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and this very first book that we're starting in the poetical section, Job. Now chapter one introduces us to a man named Job who God himself said is blameless and upright. Then verse six moves into a very unique place. We're transported into what seems to be a heavenly realm where God is essentially meeting with some of of his angelic beings who might be reporting for duty. Then one of them steps forward and begins speaking. And the one that steps forward, we know as Satan. Now the Hebrew Hebrew transliteration actually pronounces Satan as the Satan, which essentially means the one who is opposed. Or in another sense, as we see here in Job, the word, the Hebrew word for the Satan actually also means the accuser. And that's exactly what Satan did as he stood before God, as he accused him of his servant Job. God mentions his servant Job and the accuser says, well, is Job really upright? And is he really blameless? I bet if you were to take away everything he had, he would curse you to your face and he would show you then his true colors. God then allows Satan to inflict punishment and misery upon Job, which is what we read in chapter one, which is an important part of the story. So keep that in mind. So chapter one concludes, we see Job falling to his knees and what did he do? worshiped, even in the midst of the deepest, darkest part of his life, he worshiped. But it doesn't stay that way for the entirety of the story. As chapter two begins, it looks much like chapter one, where Job loses his health. Job's wife even rebukes him and cries out and says, are you still the man of integrity in light of all that God has done? She says, curse God and die. Then as chapter two closes, we get introduced to some of Job's friends whose names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Now, chapters three through 37 are an amazing compilation of Hebrew poetry where we see the dialogue between Job and these three friends. Now, keep in mind, when I say Hebrew poetry, it is definitely different than what we perceive as poetry. Now, our more modern Western mindset of poetry, what do we think of when we think of poetry? We have rhyming what? Words, exactly. Hebrew poetry doesn't necessarily use it that way. The way it's used in the Bible is you might see rhyming ideas. 
Now, the difference, um, I went and looked up one up <clears throat> between what we know as poetry and what Hebrew poetry is, is if we were to see it in our Western mindset, we would say roses are red, violets are blue, <clears throat> a face like yours belongs in a zoo. I, I don't know. I took that from, it wasn't dadjokes.com, I promise. <clears throat> Hebrew poetry, on the other hand, especially here in Job, actually consists of rhyming ideas. And that's what we will see through majority of this book. Three friends in Job go back and forth with differing ideas, trying to make sense of Job's suffering and who God is. Now, these three friends essentially suggest and propose three questions, three things that they're arguing and dialoguing over. Here's the first thing. Is God just? That's the first question. Second one. Does God operate all things under the strict guidelines of being just? That's the second question. The third question is this. If he does, if God is just, and if he operates that way, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? Well, we saw in the beginning that Job is essentially an innocent man. God himself said Job was upright and blameless. And then Job concludes that he himself is an innocent man and that the suffering that God allowed and inflicted upon him is not just. We'll go on to see if you were to read more into Job that Job starts demanding answers, asking questions, wanting answers from the God of the universe. So the three friends that Job dialogues with concludes that God is just but maybe Job must have committed some type of sin at some point in his life to be punished in this way. There is something to know here that sounds a lot like what Job's three friends have just proposed. And I feel it's something we as humans often fall into. We might say or think things like this. Well, if I'm experiencing some sort of punishment or anguish or whatever it may be, then maybe I'm dealing with past sins or I'm, God is allowing something uh, to happen to me or has caused something to happen to me in light of something that I've done wrong. But I wanna to submit to you this morning, dear brother and sister, that is not always the case. That is not always the case. That's not how life essentially works in the way that God has ordained it. And I hope to show you that as we get towards the end of our time. So all of this goes on in the book of Job. And then at chapters 32 through 37, we're introduced to a new man whose name is Elihu. Elihu enters into this dialogue and presents a lot of the same ideas that we have already been discussing and that Job and his three friends have discussed. But Elihu's argument is that God is just and that God operates the universe in justice. But Elihu comes to a slightly different conclusion. So this is what Elihu says. Maybe suffering in your life, Job, is possibly a warning to avoid future sin. Or maybe the suffering, Job, that you've been experiencing, God has given you to build character. Elihu essentially says that Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. Then in chapters 38 through 41, God shows up to respond to all this madness. Now, let's note, God had no absolute, he didn't need to. Didn't need to show up at all. 
Could have left it and figured it out by himself. But he did. And in short, God takes Job on a little tour of how the universe was made and how it operates. God essentially says, Job, where were you when I did this? Job, where were you when I thought of and formed this? Or who are you, Job, to know how and why things operate the way they do? God doing this, he's trying to teach Job by showing him that he is in no position to make any assumption or crazy accusation about him, nor should Job be demanding answers from God. Now, the last part of this section, as we get closer to the end of the book, gets better because I love what God does here, how clever it is and how he's just kind of flipping the script. As God responds to Job, he asks Job if he would like to run the universe for one day, according to the principles of justice that he and his three friends have been discussing. Can you imagine that? God was asking Job if he'd like to micromanage the world by carrying out justice for every wrongdoing and sin that occurs in the world. Can you imagine if that's how life really was? None of us would be here. Amen? If God carried out justice in that way, none of us would be here. I think it's safe to say then that Job realized he was in way over his head. He was essentially trying to take on a task that would be completely difficult. And in Job's frustration, he demands an explanation from God, claiming that God again is unjust. God's response here is amazing and beautiful. And I think it's one that we forget. No matter where you're at in life, dear brother or sister, no matter how dark that valley is, God is simply asking you to trust him and to trust in his wisdom and his plans. And that's what God asked Job to do. Job, trust in my wisdom and my plans. The story then begins to wrap up as Job realizes he's again, he's in way over his head. He can't handle this. So then he apologizes to God and he repents of his sin. But there's something really beautiful here that I noticed as I was reading and preparing this week, trying to immerse myself into this book. What I saw and loved was the real human element of Job in the story of his life. He didn't remain perfect through it all. He questioned God about all of the injustice in the world, not just his own. Another thing that I really appreciated was the human response to God. Job was an upright and blameless man, but he didn't remain that way through the entire story. At some point, Job essentially threw up his fists in the air with frustration. And at times he felt just like giving up. Often I feel like we have to. feel being completely transparent. We come, we go through and experience things in life, sometimes the most difficult or maybe just slightly difficult and we give up so easily. We do that because we're broken creatures. But God again is reminding us of something glorious and beautiful in this book, in this story, in this narrative. He's saying, just trust me, trust in my wisdom. As the story ends, so we get to chapter 42. Turn there with me. I want to read a couple of verses. 42 is the last chapter of the book. I want to show you how the story ends. And how not only the ending, the story, but the story as a whole. 
gives us great hope. Verse one, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job has repented as we see his response to God. And what God does here to Job is out of sheer grace. Verses seven, eight, and nine, uh, we see God expressing his displeasure with Job and his friends and how they were trying to figure out God and make accusations about God and come to weird conclusions. And then for no reason, verses 10 through 17, show us really something remarkable. God didn't have to do it, but he did. God restores all of Job's fortunes over and above what he had previously had. And Job lived 140 years and he died an old man full of his days. Men, I hope you would agree and echo my sentiment. That is my hope and desire as not only a pastor, but a man and a husband and a father that I would die an old man full of my days. As we begin to wrap this up, I wanna leave you with five biblical principles regarding sovereign suffering. If you wanna jot them down, uh, you'll see them on the screen behind me. As we go over these, I mean for these not to come just from the book of Job, but from the entire scope of scripture. Amen, y'all follow me? Okay, number one, God is sovereign in all things. God is sovereign in all things. Now, I'm gonna be honest. I, I do this a lot with students. I make the assumption that sometimes when I use big words, they have no idea what I'm talking about. I've realized that's true of people my age. <laughs> so for the sake of clarity, I wanna talk about this word sovereign for just a moment because I feel like it's like one of those Christianese things. Y'all know what I mean? It's a word we use, we ascribe to God, we know that, we've heard it for years. What on earth does it mean? I'm glad you asked. If you look in the dictionary, it's used in two forms. It's used as a noun and an adjective. As a noun, it means simply supreme ruler. And as an adjective, it means possessing supreme or ultimate power. So when we ascribe the word sovereign to God, we are saying he is it. No one else, no one's above him. He alone. Not only is he that, that is the way he acts in sovereignty. I went and checked uh, one of my favorite pastors, authors, communicators, John Piper, to see what he said about God's sovereignty. He had a lot to say about that, but I, I took just a, just a snippet. This is what he says. There are no limits to God's rule. This is part of what it means to be God. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He is never helpless, never frustrated, never at a loss. And in Christ, don't miss this, brothers and sisters. God's awesome, sovereign providence is the place we feel most secure, most reverent, and most free. 
as followers of Christ, when we can't understand what's going on in our lives or in this world, we trust in God's sovereignty. And that's where we find freedom and comfort and security. Amen? Number two, I hit these quickly. We saw this in Job chapter one. Satan submits to God as he permits Satan to test us. Satan submits to God as he permits Satan to test us. Now Job one and two showed us this pretty clearly. Satan asked to test Job and God gave him the ability. If there is anything that we learn from this, dear friends, it is simply that Satan is on a leash that was made by God and is controlled by God. And while I don't know if, if Satan was specifically over those planes that crashed into the World Trade Center almost 20 years ago, or if he orchestrated the earthquake that caused a tsunami in the Indian Ocean in 2004, I don't know if Satan was over that, but I do know this. God could have stopped both of those things from happening, but he didn't. God could have stopped COVID-19 from happening, but he didn't. I know that's tough, maybe a tough pill to hold in your hand and try and swallow. And I'll comment more on that in just a few moments. Satan submits to God as God permits him to test us. This is a good thing because it could be worse. Number three, there is a purpose in our suffering, by the way. God uses suffering to wean us from the world, to tear us, to separate us from the world. J.C. Ryle, who is a great uh, Anglican bishop, great theologian, uh, lived in the 1800s. He said this, trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, and to drive us to our knees. If you've ever wondered why we live in a world where there is always suffering and chaos and loss, it's this. We live in a fallen, broken picture world of God's original plan. The world that we know and we live in is a broken state of what God intended it to be. So therefore, as we go through this life and experience suffering, we are reminded that as Christians, we are awaiting a new and fully restored home. Amen? Gosh, that's exciting, especially even in the days that we're in right now. We are awaiting a world that will no longer be tainted by sin. And this is why the New Testament refers to Christians as exiles. Read Paul. We don't belong here. We're aliens. We belong to another world, another kingdom. Amen. Number four, God uses suffering to make us like Jesus. God uses suffering to make us like Jesus. While it is not easy for us to truly understand all that God wills and allows on this earth, we must remember that his purposes are not always simple. His thoughts are not our thoughts, as the psalmist said. We saw in Job chapter one that Job was a godly man and the calamity that God brought upon his life was not intended to be punishment. Rather, they were sovereign acts that were given to him that were designed to purify him. So not punishment, purification. Amen? 
This is what sanctification is. God redeems us, he makes us his own. And he's forming us, molding us more and more on a daily basis, minute by minute, to the image of his son, Jesus. James 1, verses two through four say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what I love about that last part of that verse? Did y'all hear it? Let trials and difficult times happen. Count them joy, because as they do, what will they do? What's the end result? Have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Don't miss the picture here. Is there anyone on this earth who is perfect and complete? No, but there was one man. His name is Jesus. Trials, suffering, loss are designed to make you more like Jesus. You know, since we just celebrated the birth of Jesus a couple of week or two ago, I thought, what, what was it like to live in that day? You know, we kind of get pictures and ideas of what it was like as we read the gospel accounts in the New Testament. But everyone had heard that the Messiah was born and the prophecies of old were finally coming true. Unto us, a savior had been born. Now, most people thought Jesus was going to be a true king, one that would rule and reign and overturn governments and restore balance to the world. But instead, is that what we got? No. We got something completely different. Instead of a righteous king, which he is, or a ruling king with power and authority, which he has, he came and modeled something completely different. We got a suffering servant. Therefore, our lives should, to some degree, be marked by suffering. Here's the fifth point. I think this is, not only is the word hope in this, but I hope this is what gives you hope. God receives glory as we suffer with hope in him. God receives glory as we suffer with hope in him. When Job lost all 10 of his children, verse 19 in chapter one recorded that. Job's response was this, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. There's one thing I thought several times over the last week as I was preparing and writing. I thought, you know, I can't imagine what it might be like to be an atheist or an unbeliever living through the year 2020, going through a global pandemic. Um, to even consider maybe even the despair and confusion and hopelessness that they might feel. Don't get me wrong, Christians feel that way. That's, that's normal, it's because we're broken. But I'm thinking separated from hope in Christ. What is that like? Like, thankfully, I don't know if I can wrap my mind around that. I don't know where their mind might take them. Thinking, gosh, is this all I have to live for? I mean, I, I live my years on earth and then I die and I'm in the ground. Unfortunately, that's what some people live and think on a daily basis. For Christians, it's completely different. We know we're, this ain't it. We get something way better. Amen. <laughs> there is one glorious truth that God gives us as his beloved children. And it's this. He allows us to suffer with hope. I don't think we should ever disconnect suffering and hope. 
they go together. God wouldn't be God, I think it's fair for me to say this, if he allowed us just to suffer without hope. But he does. I believe this is why Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. I fully believe that God, Jesus himself would have not invited people to come to him and give them rest if he was not ready, willing and able to do so. So Christian, when it hurts, go to Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse 17, Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It gets better than this. I thought too, as I was beginning to wrap this up, to my knowledge, there is no place in scripture where God promises that his people won't suffer. Would y'all agree with me? Like even if you don't know it or if you haven't read it. To my knowledge, I've really thought about this. It's some research. There is no place in scripture where God promises that we won't suffer in this life. But I do know that the Bible promises that as we suffer, God walks alongside us and is giving us grace, mercy, and hope for every moment. I told you earlier, at the beginning of our time, I asked that question, why do bad things happen to good people? How many of you raised your hand and said, you've wondered that or you've talked to someone who's asked that question? It's an apologetics question, I think so. Let me share with you what I learned several years ago and what I love and hold to. Uh, you know, I've learned sometimes when it comes to things where people question the faith, Christianity, and they're asking questions, I feel sometimes they're asking the wrong question. Y'all follow me? Like they think their question is legit, but I, when you really look at it, it's not a great question. So here's the answer to the question that R.C. Sproul gave years ago, and I love it. Uh, many of you maybe even heard it, but R.C. Sproul answered this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? He said this, that only happened once and he volunteered. When you think about the question, you realize it's not really a question. The Bible confirms and teaches that we are not good people. We're wicked and deceitful and something is wrong. So the real question is this, why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> God's grace and mercy. So we close um, I've asked David to sing a song that I love. I don't know if we sang it before. I, I wanna invite you to do this. If you've never heard it, just listen. David and Allie are gonna probably kill it. But the message of the song is so great. It's a song called, Though You Slay Me. Uh, so if you've never heard it, don't feel led to sing, but just listen. I wanna invite you in this time of response, two different ways. For the Christian I'm pretty sure 2020 was a rough year. It's a big enough uh, room for enough people in here to know that there are people in here now who are probably walking through something very difficult. I wanna invite you that this altar is open and there's always room at the cross to just go and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Just take a moment and cast your burdens on him. That's the invitation for the Christian. If you're here, if you're watching online and this is new to you, 
You're not sure about the Christian faith. You're still wandering through life and figuring this out. The invitation for you is to repent and believe in Jesus. The gospel is free to everyone. Not only do you get salvation and redemption, but you get hope in your suffering. Amen? That's the invitation. I would invite you to do this as we sing and respond. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this great truth. Thank you for being our comfort and our stable. Father, help us now to respond with hearts that are open and ready and willing to accept all that you have to offer us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 